Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Warning, Witch Hunt features strong content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. The information contained in this podcast is either general in nature or specific to the experiences of the individuals featured. It does not constitute legal advice. You should always seek advice from appropriately qualified people about your own rights and experiences. Um, the, I received a folder of material before the meeting and I looked at it. It was very disturbing and there was a ritual ritualistic, sadistic sort of theme. And I could see that the woman kept trying to prove herself to these men. She was being bullied and sexually harassed pretty um, ferociously. It was very upsetting to read and I finished it and then went to meet her and I went into the room, the conference room as I always do, and I said, hi, I'm Josh Bornstein. And she responded, um, I don't want to live anymore. And then she just began to sob and she, her whole body shook. God, when you think of workplace sexual harassment, you never really consider how devastating it can be on a person, do you? In the time that I've been looking into these stories and speaking to a lot of women, um, particularly in the, in the music industry, which is what I've been focused on, a lot of them have spoken about how much sustained harassment was a major contributing factor for them leaving the industry. And you think a lot about these industries that are dominated by men that are shutting out women, and this is exactly how it happens. Okay, so we should probably say what we're doing. <laughs> this is Witch Hunt. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and we're looking at what comes after Me Too. I'm Steph Harmon. And today, specifically, we're looking at sexual harassment at work. Um, listening to that tape, just it's quite shocking, isn't it? Thinking about how much it can affect you. I think when we think about Me Too, we're thinking about these these stories of Hollywood, the Harvey Weinstein allegations. But when you get down to the kind of meat of a lot of the allegations, they're, they're workplace harassment allegations. And workplace harassment is something that affects so many women. It's affected me. I know it's affected you. Yeah. It's affected pretty much every woman I know. Mm. It's, I mean, some statistics came out in September in Australia that showed that more than 85% of women and 56% of men report having been sexually harassed at some time. 
Yeah, it was something that I didn't really associate with until people started sharing their stories of me too. And then I started looking back at what I'd been through when I was younger. And there was a guy that I worked for in the office who every Friday would just drag me into his little office to the side of the shared workspace we had and would get me to scroll through an email he received every Friday of just pornographic images. I didn't know what to do. I just went through it. I laughed along. I realise now that was sexual harassment. (laughs) I had a boss in London who um, commented on my looks and what I wore constantly and one day I was in a meeting talking to a whole bunch of people and something about pearls came up, oysters, and he said in front of everyone, gee, I'd love to see you in a pearl necklace. How did that make you feel? Well, I was mortified and I... um, was lucky that it was a freelance job and the next day I told my female boss that I would never work with that man again. I've seen it in a lot of my friends work in the finance industry. I've seen it happen time and time again that they just leave yeah, because it's too life-destroying to report it. And it can be traumatising too. I've spoken to a lot of women who had to seek therapy after sustained harassment And it's not just a case of nasty men behaving badly, is it? It's actually the way the workplace and the law is set up that creates a condition for this to keep happening and for it to be acceptable in a way. And it's also about how HR responds or the failures of HR to respond. So in this episode, we're going to unspool the complexities of what happens in a workplace sexual harassment case. I'm Josh Bornstein. I'm head of the Employment Law Division at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. I'm dealing with one at the moment where a real estate director is sexually harassing one of his colleagues and he sends her in the middle of the night a whole series of harassing texts and she's saying, go to bed, babe. Da-da-da, lol. And then he sends her a pornographic image of anal sex and says this is what this is what I want to do with you tonight. What I notice often with sexual harassment cases is women who are working alongside an harasser are trying to keep their job alive, keep their income. Most people don't want to admit this situation is irretrievable and I have to leave. It's a process that people go through. So what you'll find is, in order to try and deal with the perpetrator, the woman will try and keep a veneer of civility and friendliness to try and maintain her employment, while at the same time trying to make clear, not interested, stop, don't, but at the same time being friendly. If they don't, their fear is they'll be sacked. Mm. They stick their head up, it gets chopped off. But if they don't do that, then how do you communicate? So what tends to happen is there's friendly banter and communication while at the same time keeping a distance. Mm. What happens when that situation deteriorates, the woman comes to see me, that banter is said to be evidence of consent. And so every time I go to a mediation or a discussion or I joust with the lawyers on the other side, I say, every case I have virtually of sexual harassment, there's the same banter and patter. That's not going to stop me slicing your client up 
when when they get into the witness box. You tell me where it's appropriate for a married guy to be sending pornographic anal sex images while his wife's asleep after three three times being told, go to bed. You want to tell that to the judge? Please do. people still are reluctant to report. Only one in five people will report, and that's been consistent over the four times we've done this survey. And those who do, it actually told us that half of them find nothing changes as a result. Kate Jenkins is the Sex Discrimination Commissioner at the Human Rights Commission, or HRC as it's known. In September of 2018, they released a survey of over 10,000 people on sexual harassment in the workplace. And the other interesting stat we found was more people are noticing sexual harassment, so quite an increase in the number of people who say they've seen or witnessed sexual harassment. Have you noticed any difference or change in complaints since the beginning of the Me Too movement? Yes, we have noticed an increase in people coming to us for sexual harassment concerns and also an increase of organisations asking for help on how they can meet their obligations. I still think we're only the tip of the iceberg. So in reality, in complaints, we only had something like 250 complaints last year. And we know from the research that we do and others that the experience of sexual harassment is much higher. So we know it's a really common experience, but many people say they wouldn't raise a complaint because of fears for their own careers, fears for their reputations, fears that they won't be taken seriously. So ultimately, lots of people just put up with it uh, because they want to keep their jobs and they want to keep working. So we'll just do like a fairly traditional interview first. Yeah, sure. Um, But first of all, can you say your name? Noreen Young, um, Industry Professor, Indigenous Workforce Diversity at UTS Jambana. She's also on the board of Now Australia, an advocacy group for people who have been sexually harassed at work. And she spent many years as the director of the New South Wales Women's Working Centre, where she heard firsthand stories of the problems women face in the workplace. Um, Have you noticed anything different since the Me Too movement started? Oh, we're talking about it. And I think um, that what it's done very distinctly is brought the stories out from just among women. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know that it's something we've always talked about, usually around wines and our own private spaces, whether that's Tupperware parties or whether it's embroidery classes that I go to or, or, you know, a whole lot of spaces. But I think Australian women have always created those, those spaces for ourselves to talk about things that we didn't want to talk to in front of men Mm. because we wouldn't be believed or we'd be ridiculed or whatever. Whatever. And, and I think now it's in the public domain and that's the big change and that's really important because I think it's it's really not right to say um, that it's only now that men are realising that they have a role to play in this. I, I think as a feminist we've always relied on what we used to call the good men mm-hmm. um, to help us make change because they ha- are the ones who have the power and have traditionally had it. So I think um, the good men are just as outraged as we are, well, more outraged than we are because they haven't necessarily heard about it before and that seems to me to be the change. 
people are talking about sexual harassment more, what can they do when it happens? How should we deal with it in the workplace? We asked Nareen, Kate and Josh what they might do in a few different situations. Now, we've used these scenarios because we've heard versions of these stories ourselves. Imagine this. You're at a work function, everyone's sitting around a table eating lunch and you notice one of your colleagues, who's sitting next to a senior manager, starts looking pretty uncomfortable. Later you ask if she's okay and then she tells you that the manager had put his hand on her leg. I think the way to support that person is to, first of all, let them know that you do support them and that you will assist them and buy some time because at that moment, big decisions could be made. Emotion is very probably heightened and I tend to be a a fan of waiting until you're calm analysing the situation and then deciding what to do. When I'm deeply stressed or traumatised, I'm, I'm not particularly rational. And that's when you need really rational advice about how to navigate. Sit down and talk about it immediately and tell her to write it down immediately because you forget detail. Um, if you work in a workplace that has mechanisms and, you know, it's on the intraweb for everybody to see, then you have to make a decision about whether you report it um, and, and you just have to support that person in whatever they want to do. I would advise them to get legal advice, to ring one of the government provider because they can help everybody in the first instance. So Law Access, Justice Connect, they're called different things in different states. Um, you might have to wait till the next day or later during the week for employment advice, but get it before you report it. Right. And what do you say to people who who say she should have just told him to get lost at the time? Well, we all know how we react. That's just, either, you know, to me that's either people who've never had it happen to them or extraordinary humans who are able to react appropriately mm. in situations. Whoever does the absolute perfect thing in any scenario. I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but I have conversations, you know, 10 minutes later with my partner who I've lived with for 29 years, who 10 minutes later I go, that's not what I should have said to him, yes. right? We all do that all the time. And I, I have to say, when it happens to you, you and I'm sure everyone who's listening who it's happened to, you feel so shocked and so invaded that you don't respond necessarily in the way you normally would, mm. right? I can remember happen, it happened to me at a dinner one night, the hand on the leg thing, and I and the person's mother was sitting at the table, right? What? Yeah, and his father, and it was a work thing. But I was so shocked. And what do you do in the scenario? Do you get up and move, like, in the middle of a speech? Do you? So I think that's just a really frivolous mm. kind of response to that. And by golly, you must be perfect at reacting yeah. if you think that anyone else is going to be. I think you're right. I think it's... People who say it have never had it happen to yeah, them because yeah. you think, I would definitely behave like yeah, this, right? Yeah. I, I'm not shy. Yeah. And then it yeah. happens and you're like... You, well, you feel so invaded. Sometimes you don't even really know what's happened. Yeah, yeah exactly. Until, you're so shocked yeah. that you don't take it in. Yeah. yeah. And then 10 minutes later you're yeah. like, 
this just happened to me. And the same thing happens when people say odd sexist and odd racist things yes. as well. Oh. You know what that's like, yeah. right? You just go, it takes a while to process. Mm. Here's another example. Your manager has made several unwanted sexual advances towards you, asking you back to his hotel room on a work trip, sending you suggestive messages, and you find out this has happened to several other women. HR is aware of the complaints and has done nothing. Now the manager has been promoted. You don't trust HR. He's now in a very senior position. Is there anything you can do? Yeah, so my first question is, is this the most senior manager, as in, is it the CEO? You always look above. So whilst HR departments often carry the responsibility that in reality that manager, particularly in the current climate where we know this is a bad workplace practice, that manager creates a huge risk to that organisation. So if I listen to that scenario, one option is, and you might do it collectively, to go above that manager. You mightn't go to HR, you might go to the managing director and say, we collectively are concerned about this person's conduct. That's one option. The other The other option, of course, is to call the Human Rights Commission and to understand some other external options, um, to speak to the union, to to do the other avenues that might be available. This is very difficult. So this focuses on the crucial role of the HR manager. And as much as I'd like to tell you that it's different, their role can be compromised in some situations. The typical situation in which HR perhaps should not be trusted is where the perpetrator is very powerful in the organisation. If the perpetrator is being supported, promoted and high up in the hierarchy, there's a risk that HR will not want to try and disturb that situation and that the HR manager herself or himself feels threatened if they do take the, the matter on properly. So that's a very difficult uh, situation to be in for an employee. Some HR managers will, uh, notwithstanding that dynamic, stick their head out themselves and they will get sacked. I've seen that and I've acted for them. So HR managers do try and guard the culture and can be ambassadors for, for great workplaces, but sometimes find themselves in a similar position to a whistleblower they're conscious of the history of the perpetrator. Do I take it on? Is the organisation going to support me or am I going to be at risk of losing my job? And so they're in that dilemma as well. Where they decide that they can't afford to take the risk, they'll play it down and uh, encourage the person just to cop it or do some peremptory investigation and, and clear the person. I think that there is huge mistrust of HR, in inverted commas, in the community for all of these reasons. The practical day-to-day of all of this stuff is that it's happened to a person, it's been done by another person, the organisation has to protect itself because it is responsible for the workplace culture and HR is responsible for that workplace culture. So everyone runs around in a tizzy trying to protect itself, themselves and it. So... These things have to be dealt with by regulation. 
we just can't keep on going the way in the system we're currently working in. In most of the solutions to workplace sexual harassment, it seems legal advice is always recommended. But there are problems with hiring lawyers. The issue with lawyers, like me, is we're disgracefully expensive. Secondly, there's a huge unmet demand out there for people with problems at work. So we see less than 5% of people who contact us, uh, less than 5% get, get in the door. Um, The Fair Work Ombudsman, which is a big regulator, which has a lot of resources, sees a tiny proportion of people who are screwed at work. So there's a big unmet demand out there. We tend to only decide to take on a case if we think that the cost will be comfortably exceeded by the outcome, if that makes any sense. So the person can afford the legal fees? Correct. My strong view is that clearly whatever's happening hasn't worked Mm. um, in the 35 years since the introduction or probably nearly 40 now of the Sex Discrimination Act. I think um, the conversation at the moment is recognising that just because a policy says don't do something doesn't mean that has turned into reality. Right now... Um, sexual harassment falls into policies and procedures which aren't enforceable, Mm. right? Which is my point. My point is that it should be industrial legislation um, or, alternatively, unions need to push employers to to ensure that the policies and procedures of the relevant organisation go into enterprise or agency bargaining agreements so they are also part of the industrial instrument um, that is relevant at a particular workplace. And and I think the human resources industry and sector will be forced to take it seriously rather than rely on non-enforceable policies and procedures. And I think it's one of the really big problems. Because they could be then held accountable. Absolutely. And organisations will be held accountable. And as you point out, it's the leadership of organisations who ultimately have responsibility for how organisations operate. All those policies might are well and good, but if people are not really being respectful to each other and no one is calling it out, no one is setting a new tone, then we're just going to continue with, you know, a, a, a sort of a tolerance, a dismissal, a minimisation of sexual conduct that usually women in more junior roles are at the bad end of. If I had a a complete power to rewrite the system, there are difficulties in New South Wales where there is a cap on damages for harm to mental health of $100,000. That's pretty ridiculous, particularly for a woman who's severely impacted and who may not work for a couple of years or longer. There's also in the current federal system a policy which basically says if you've got a case, come to us within six months. My view is get rid of that. Mm. If the Guardian breaches your employment contract, God forbid, Gabrielle, you've got six years to take action. Why shouldn't you 
have six years to take action if you're harassed mm. in this workplace. Well, sometimes it takes more than six months for it to actually have an effect on your Correct. mental health or for Correct. you to realise. Correct. So I think there's all those sorts of improvements that can be made. More broadly, in terms of workplaces, I think because this often ha happens under the radar um, and its scale is underestimated and not so well understood, if you required organisations to report at least any uh, or allegations of sexual harassment and any outcome without naming names, mm -hmm. and you got that requirement to report to a central agency and that agency could publish data, I think that would be helpful as well. Mm. Um, because at least it would give us more of a sense of actually the pulse when it comes to what's going on in workplaces rather than having all these situations which I'm involved in where no one knows what's going yeah. on and it's all tied up in a ribbon and settled and everyone's not uh, required not to say a word. Uh, how likely, is there anyone interested <laughs> in this? This is where the issue, the challenge about Me Too comes in mm. because Me Too so far has been a call to arms, a shock to the system and it's yet to play out in terms of the political process and policy change. Josh says there, I think, pretty much sums up the reason we made the podcast. We wanted to see where Me Too would go next and what needs to change in order for gender equality to actually happen. And I think it's important to say, given all the advice we've just heard in this episode, that we're not here to endorse any of it. We're not trying to tell women not to report sexual harassment or sexual abuse. What we wanted to do in this episode is to find out why women don't report it and what happens when they do within the structures that exist right now. Yeah, I, I think it's clear it's really an individual and quite a personal choice. But if you do want to go forward with a complaint, Noreen's suggestion to get advice from a legal professional is really important. If you can't afford a lawyer, there's lots of places you can go to for advice as well. Look up community legal services or women's legal services in your area. Many of them now offer employment advice as well. Or you can call the Human Rights Commission for advice and raise a complaint through them rather than going through the court system. And you can get pro bono help, but pro bono lawyers tend to only want to take cases that they can win. One of the biggest takeaways from this whole thing for me is that if you don't know whether you want to take action, you should write it down. Write down what happened to you immediately and put a date on it, send it to a family member, send it to a friend. It can become really important if you decide to take action later on because you might decide way later on and you might not remember all the details. It could even be used as evidence. Some women might just want to move on after harassment or an assault and that's fine but others do need justice in order to get closure and that's what we're going to be talking about in next week's episode. We're going to look at how the Australian justice system handles rape and assault cases, speaking to people who've experienced it from all sides. Narratives that people think rapes follow have a big effect. We think a rapist is a stranger who's probably a man of colour who jumps out of the bushes and hurts you while he's doing it. And it's just not the case at all. And people are so afraid of giving a defendant a rape conviction. That's a really, really big deal. Um, and it is a big deal. But they just feel uncomfortable doing it unless it fits one of these stories that they are ready to accept. Until then, 
I'm Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Steph Harmon. Thanks for listening to Witch Hunt. You can find us on your favourite podcasting app or on the Guardian website. Please leave a review if you can because it helps other people find us.